Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, and today's Jill's pin was just custom-made for me, and it is a picture of Donald Trump being gagged. And uh, I will post a picture of it so you can all see it. Um, I think you will enjoy seeing it. It's amazing, and you just have to wonder how many pins Jill has at this point that she's getting even more, but um, it's very fitting for this episode. Um, Donald Trump's New York fraud trial is well underway, and we are getting the first glimpse into what Trump is like inside the courtroom. Based on those inside the courtroom, we learned that Donald Trump was evasive in answering questions, and that he acted more like he was at a political rally than in a courtroom. Who would want Donald Trump as their client? And based on how many of his lawyers have been indicted or sued, how me- how bad an idea is it to take on Donald Trump as a client? Is there anything any lawyer can do to rein Donald Trump in? We're going to talk about all of that with our guest today. He is a lawyer who used to represent Rudy Giuliani and who turned down the request to be Donald Trump's lawyer in the Mar-a-Lago case. He is John Sale one of my friends and a colleague from the office of the Watergate prosecutor, uh, the special prosecution force. He is now a partner at Nelson Mullins and he is in the Florida office where he is the chair of their one of their litigation departments. John also previously served as an assistant US attorney in the Southern District of Florida. I'm sorry, the Southern District of New York, excuse me folks, and in the District of Connecticut and has recently appeared on virtually every channel uh, available because of his connection to almost representing Donald Trump. He also, like me, supports the use of cameras in the courtroom, at least in the case of Donald Trump, not necessarily generically, which I definitely support. Um, So we're gonna wanna talk about his views on cameras in the courtroom as well. John, thank you for being with us today. We're very excited to have this conversation and to have you join iGen Politics. Uh, it's good to be with you. And nice to see you again, Jill. And nice to meet you, Vic. Likewise. Um, so we have a lot to talk about, but let's start with what's happening right now. Some amazing reporters inside the courtroom. We now have a sense of what Donald Trump is like as as a witness. And I'm wondering, what do you make of some of the things that he has said and his behavior that we've seen um, so far in New York? What stands out to you? Well, we have certain norms or certain ways of behaving in a courtroom, whether you're a party or you're a lawyer or a judge. And I was in court, federal court this morning, and things that just happen everywhere seems like Donald Trump doesn't follow the rules, doesn't follow the rule book. I mean, in this case in New York, he's already lost on the merits. And his testimony is obviously was geared towards the bigger audience. Uh, the judge had, he, he don't, it's not rocket science. The judge is the jury here. He's the fact finder. So you don't pick a fight and alienate the fact finder unless you think it's in your interest. And here the judge even had to admonish him. And he had to say, it's not a political rally. And if you keep doing this, I'm going to make it, I can make an adverse finding 
and does not believe anything you're saying. So uh, I think they've made a calculus, uh, the former president and his advisors, that they're not going to win in a courtroom. So come outside, turn it into a circus to the extent you can, and play to the base. And uh, I'm not so sure that it's, uh, well, I don't want to use a double negative. I'm concerned that it may be working. Oh, really? So you think this could be working with his base, even though it's probably, as you pointed out, he's antagonizing and insulting the judge, who will be the fact finder, who has already, in a gag order hearing, said, I don't find you credible, and who has already found him guilty of fraud. He didn't say Donald Trump was a fraud. He said that his activities were fraudulent, uh, even though Donald Trump said, you don't even know me and you called me a fraud which is not an accurate rendition of what Judge Engeron said. Um, but you think that his audience, his loyal MAGA supporters, may be persuaded that he's right? I, I'm totally convinced that his that base, the MAGA supporters who think he can do no wrong, right. think he is a victim here. My concern is if that pitch is being successful like a television show, uh, beyond the support, the supporters. So Chris Kyes, his lead lawyer, came out and said to the press, in 30-some odd years of being a lawyer, I've never seen a better witness than President Trump. Right. And uh, Alina Hubbard, not at this time, but it's been reported, she said that he is the most ethical American I've ever met. So uh, it's all scripted. And, uh, you know, I they must think it's working. And I think they're using this all, all as a test run. Because, you know, as important as we can all say his brand and money is, it is. But you don't go, this judge can't put him in prison. This judge is, it's not a criminal case. And I think the big threat, looming threat, is the case before Judge Shotgun in Washington. And I, I want to follow up on what Chris Kai said and what Alina Haba said and get into more detail. But I think Victor had a follow-up question before I get to that. Yeah, I just have a follow-up question for some maybe non-lawyer um, listeners out there, which is at the beginning, you mentioned that, you know, the jury in this case is Engeron. Can you talk a little bit more about how that changes the dynamics of this versus if there were just an ordinary jury pool? Well, if, if there's a jury, uh, there are a certain, certain degree of, for lack of a better word, of acting that we trial lawyers do, because you want to appeal to a jury, you want to appeal to their uh, instincts to there. Uh, you know, as an advocate, you're really not looking, frankly, for a fair jury. As an advocate, you're looking for a jury that's most favorable to your position. Uh, the judge is there to try and get a, make it a fair jury. But when 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 the judge here is finding the facts, I mean, it just, I can't figure any reason why any sane person would try and antagonize that person unless you've already concluded we've lost in the court but let's play to the bigger arena. And in the very big picture, you know, it's it's really unthinkable that the, a former president of the United States would be indicted criminally. And now four indictments. I mean, uh, it's, it's just so hard. It's so, so hard to imagine. Uh, so they've. I think the strategy, and I think it would work if he, if former President Trump is reelected, all of his cases are going to go away. I, I know that there are two states that, that, can't, that can't be pardoned, notwithstanding uh, if he becomes president of the United States as a practical matter, 
I I don't think there's anything the states can do about it. Well, I, are they going to go to the White House and say, "Excuse me, Mr. President, we have a warrant for your arrest"? Well, hopefully Georgia will get to try the case sooner than the election. And actually, I have a future question that I'll ask you right now, which is whether you think that Judge Eileen Cannon, who is sitting on the Mar-a-Lago federal case in Florida, is saying, well, I'm not going to grant your motion for an extension right now, but, you know, we can talk about it again in March and that she's going to keep doing a little bit at a time so that the Georgia case can't get scheduled for the May date that she will never allow to be her trial date and that somehow they'll delay it. She'll say, okay, we're going to do it in June. No, we're going to do it in July. And then it's going to be the election. And then Georgia won't get to try him until after the election. Do you think that that's part of Eileen Cannon's delay tactics and help Donald Trump tactics? Candidly, I think Judge Cannon is getting a bad rap. Uh, it all started with her decision regarding the special master. And we could talk about that for a long time, but I don't want to get too technical. Okay. But, you know, there are classified documents involved here. So the, under SEPA, the Classified Documents uh, Act, there are a lot of things that require delay. And, there's, and there are a lot of pleadings that are under seal dealing with the classified documents. But... Donald Trump already has two cases that have trial dates. He has the case before Judge Shutkin that has a trial date in early March, and the New York case is set for late March. So I, I just don't think with motions pending, frankly, I don't think it's unreasonable that a judge is saying, look, uh, you already have two cases set in, uh, in March. Let's wait. Let's see what happens if those trial dates are set. Let's see what happens with the classified documents, and we'll deal with it at the time. In other words, I'm giving her the... I presume Judge Cannon is going to do the right thing. And the right thing is call it on the merits. That's a great and interesting perspective. So I'm, I'm, that's why we have you here is to get a totally different perspective on things. Um, what do you expect the defense going back to the New York case? What do you expect Donald Trump's defense to be? He has a witness list of over 100 witnesses. And um, he started out with his son being recalled. And of course, you have to wonder if there was something great that Donald Trump Jr. had to say, why didn't they get it out on cross-examination when he was a state's witness? But so maybe you can answer sort of both of those questions at once. The defense is that Donald Trump is wonderful, that uh, just the fact that his name is attached to something gives it value beyond our ability to even count or fathom that Donald Jr. was here as his father's cheerleader. Uh, and the 127 or some odd number of witnesses, I think is a complete bluff. It's a tactic that to some extent we all do is that it basically, if you don't have someone on the list, Jill, as you know, yes. and you can't call them. But I think what they're doing is trying to uh, not let the adversary, the attorney general know who they're gonna really call, hopefully so that the attorney general's lawyers will not be prepared for cross-examination. Uh, they're not going to call 127 witnesses. Uh, I'd be surprised if they call 20. Yeah, I mean, it would be more than the state had, more than I think Judge Engeron is going to allow. Um, but it's a good strategy. First of all, you, you in legitimate 
circumstances, you do want to put everyone who's possible on the list so that you are not barred from calling them because you didn't give any warning. On the other hand, if you put that many on the list, it does mean there's going to be a lot of running around and preparation for witnesses that will never be called, which means you're not going as in-depth on the ones that will be called. So, you know, it hurts and it helps at the same time. It's legitimate and illegitimate. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah. we, so there's been reporting that you previously declined to represent Trump um, in the Mar-a-Lago. Talk about that and why you didn't want to represent him. Well, I think the opportunity to represent the former president, uh, without without hyperbole, I think it's the biggest case in the world. So I think any lawyer, you put aside your political views, lawyers represent clients. So I think it's something that I had to give some consideration to. But uh, I realized at the time that I was asked, to the, I counted approximately 12 Department of Justice lawyers who were working on various investigations of former President Trump, sort of like when Jill and I worked for the Watergate Special Prosecutor's Office. We had a number of lawyers working on different aspects of it. So it became immediately apparent to me that it was a full-time job. And I'm with a big law firm and I have a very busy practice. So it wasn't even an option uh, after I thought about it a little bit. So I just respectfully declined. And I didn't have to go to some of the other decisions as to whether it was really right for me, which I would have concluded it wasn't. But uh, to be honest, I, I didn't even go there. I just practically couldn't do it. And and do I have any regrets? You bet I don't. Do not. <laughs> well, you, approach you look at how many lawyers were indicted who had represented him, how many lawyers have lost their licenses um, and their reputations. You have to say, I'm glad I wasn't in that circumstance. Um, and also how many lawyers haven't been paid by him? And you go like, well, Chris Kais, I understand, got $3 million up front in order to represent him. And that's probably the only way that if you're a smart lawyer, you're going to represent him is to get paid up front because he does have a, a reputation, um, well justified, that he doesn't pay people. So I'm sure your firm wouldn't have been happy if you had spent all that time and didn't get paid, right? Well, you may have noticed that three of the four lawyers who he has now all were with big major large firms like I am, and they all had, had left their firms. So that's not a coincidence. Big firms in general, and I can't speak for my firm or any other firm, don't want controversy. Uh, but in fairness, so I was on uh, Ari Melba's show shortly after I declined to represent him. And I said, so Ari said to me, well, you didn't mention your concern about not being paid. Right. So I said to him, well, no, frankly, that wasn't a concern. And Ari didn't let me get away with that. I thought he would just go on. So he pressed me. And uh, I said, well, the reason it wasn't a concern is that the money was not coming from Donald Trump. It was coming from this PAC, which oh, has oh, lots of money. And interestingly enough, he's not agreeing to pay many of the other lawyers, which may be a big mistake on his part. Yeah, I, I so, yeah. Go, yeah. go ahead. Well, let's talk about some of the other lawyers who do represent Trump. Do you know any of them from your practice or otherwise? And if so, what can you tell us about them, their reputations, what they're like as lawyers? 
Well, the the remaining lawyers, three of the three lead ones are all good lawyers. Uh, but as I said before, they have to, I thought if I did get involved, I would want to just to be a lawyer and stay out of the political aspect of it because I'm not a political analyst, not a political consultant. But when someone's running for president, you really can't. I mean, as illustrated by the way he behaved with Judge Engron. So uh, they're good lawyers, but you come out and they give, they talk to the press and they become cheerleaders. Uh, John Lauro, who's a very good lawyer, but the week or two after he signed on, he went on all the Sunday talk shows. And all I can say is he's a, I'll repeat again, he's a good lawyer. I mean, I don't want to criticize anybody, but uh, I don't, I don't think any of us would do well for this client going on television talking about it. I have a rule. I'm, I'm on TV a lot, but I never talk about a client. Never have. And uh, I just don't think you can help your client by talking about him on TV. Him or her. So speaking of lawyers, after Watergate, there were so many lawyers involved that the rules of ethics were actually amended because of that. And I'm wondering, given how many lawyers are now indicted um, and or and or have pled guilty, um, Sidney Powell, for example, and Jenna Ellis, um, whether the rules of ethics are going to have to be clarified or whether these were so obvious violations that they fall within the existing rules. What do you think? Jill, you and I share a, a pride. We can be so very proud of being part of that wonderful office uh, in the Watergate days. And for years, and then I stayed with the government for a while, and I was the first assistant U.S. attorney in in South Florida. And there were so many reforms. There were, the Justice Department was totally non-political in every way, which it's, I think it still is right now. But Donald Trump poses such a threat to that that uh, it just, I'm concerned. I mean, I'm concerned for the rule of law, very much so. But I wanna say, I I made that big buildup that I'm, you know, I think Jill, you and I have lived in respect for the rule of law professionally. And I think it's it's being threatened greatly by by Trump. But I wanna say, because you mentioned the the Georgia case and the guilty pleas, Mm -hmm. uh, those guilty pleas, uh, I think are awful. I'm not saying the lawyers. I think that they were allowed to plead that way. For example, Ken Chesbro, he is alleged in that indictment and he's in the federal indictment as being the architect of the false elector scheme, the one who designed it. And if if that's true, to me, that's one of the most serious crimes I can think of. I mean, yeah. coming up with this plan to defraud the United States government to defraud to make the vice president account false votes knowingly. And yet look at the plea they gave him. They gave him a plea which it can be expunged and uh, he and they stipulated that it is not a crime of moral turpitude, which means they're urging the bar to not even take his license away and probation. Well, that could never happen with with the feds. And and I think it's going to complicate Jack Smith's case because he's not really going to be able to be called as a government witness because he couldn't get that kind of a deal with the feds. So he would take the fifth. So uh, I think the, the, and Jenna Ellis, 
If you heard her allocution, she said, also probation, if I knew then what I know now, well, that's not a guilty plea. It's what you knew then that matters. Uh, and then she says, well, I relied on more experienced lawyers. Then she's not guilty. Then she's not accepting responsibility. And uh, and and I think that the leaks, frankly, are disgraceful of the what's come out in the last couple of days. The, the tape recording of the proffers? You're yeah, they're parts of proffers. And uh, they just raise more questions. Now, uh, the district attorney has, has made an emergency motion for a protective order, so that, that can't happen again. But, you know, I wonder who leaked these things, why, what are they trying to achieve? I mean, I just don't believe in leaks. I think it's unfair to everybody. And I do also feel strongly that the Constitution that Donald Trump said should be suspended, I think that great document should he should get the protections of it he should be presumed innocent and we should all as officers of the court should hope he gets a fair trial with an unbiased jury because if if people we disagree with don't get it then we're all endangered absolutely i mean i would never want you to actually represent trump but if you did represent trump what would you tell him what would your advice be to him well it, it, frankly, I don't think it would matter much because I don't think he would take it. And I you know, I probably would have been fired or would have resigned. But uh, oh, you know, the gag order, for example, uh, there's very little law on a gag order like this. Forget about that he's running for president because usually gag orders, they're not common, but usually when you have a gag order, it's the lawyers who are gagged. The client never talks. You tell the first thing you tell a client is don't say anything, don't talk to anybody, don't talk to the press if it's a high visibility case. But the one case, appellate court case involving a gag order, involved a congressman who happened to have been a Democrat. And there was a thoughtful gag order opposed, and the Court of Appeals reversed it and said that it was too broad because there's this high degree of protection from the First Amendment for speech, political speech and somebody running for office. Like for example, uh, Vice President Pence, he's a very important witness against against uh, Trump. You know, I hate the term I say against. I mean, it's to tell the truth and it'll be hurtful to Trump. But he has written a book. He's gone on television saying things like, Donald Trump asked me to put him over the constitution and what Donald Trump did is endangering my family. Well. Mr. Pence has a right to say those things, but then I think candidate Trump has a right to answer those things. So I think the the real test is, as the Eastwood Court of Appeals case said, held, it was in a case called, uh, oh, his name's escaping me now, Ford, Harold Ford Sr. It said there really has to be, for it to be constitutional, a gag order, a clear and present danger of an inciting violence. And that's a, easy to say, but that's very hard to draw the line. Where is it inciting violence? And even if you impose a gag order, like the Court of Appeals is now reviewing it, and even if Mr. Trump abides by it, which is questionable, his surrogates, he, uh, he can have surrogates out there who can say the same things which could intimidate witnesses. And you'd have to have a hearing where you'd have to have evidence to prove that they did it at the request of Donald Trump, which would be virtually impossible to prove. So it's a very difficult, challenging task. 
that Judge Chutkin is going to face. How to control Donald Trump. Easy to state that question. I mean, that's an answer I don't have. You know, I've spoken to judges, friends off the record, and I've said, listen, what would you do? Well, how would you control him if the case was before you? And some of them have said, hey, I treat him like anybody else. He's not above the law. And if he didn't behave during a trial, I'd put him in jail. Well, I I think they're saying that, like we're talking on this podcast, they right. don't really have that responsibility. I don't know that right. as a practical matter, Judge Chutkin or anyone else, if he misbehaves during trial, can put him in jail. Uh, she can, but he's got Secret Service and all the other things. He's not treated the same as everyone else uh, from the very beginning. I mean, in, in Florida, they didn't take his mugshot. They don't restrict his travel like they do his co-defendants. It's because he's former president. Well, everything you're saying is true. Um, although um, Eric Holder, the former attorney general, did say that absolutely the Bureau of Prisons could handle incarcerating Donald Trump and that the Secret Service would not have a huge presence there. They wouldn't need a full cadre of agents to protect him in jail. Um, but I, too, have talked to judges and uh, friends who are judges, and they all recognize the difficult position they would be in if they had to try to control him. And I mean, Judge Engeron said to his lawyers, can't you control your client? And obviously the answer is no, they cannot. And I, I think he's hurting himself by his behavior and that he should get back to acting in a better way. But I think, as you said in the beginning, his goal is not to win this lawsuit. It's to get elected and to appeal to his particular followers and so he's yeah. not going to control himself because he thinks that this is actually helping him. So, um, you know, you have to worry, is he acting in this way in the courtroom because he thinks it will appeal to his base? Or is he trying to create reversible error, trying to provoke Judge Engeron into doing something that might go too far? And so far, I think he's been, Judge Engeron has been pretty controlled and has even said to the state, you don't want this to be reversed after conviction. So no, I'm not gonna let you limit his witnesses, for example, uh, when they asked for four experts that the, the state thought were unnecessary. And so I think he's being careful, but do you think he's being careful enough? Oh, I think actually he's being overly careful. I mean, there comes a point when judges simply have to call it as they see it and not worry about, oh my God, if I have to bend over backwards not to be reversed. Uh, but it's just the behavior is I'm just at a loss for words because, you know, I can't imagine anybody behaving that way uh, in a courtroom. But in a courtroom, it, look, let's put ourselves if possible in his position. He's the former commander in chief. He's the former most powerful person in the free world. And he comes into this little courtroom and there's either a man or a woman with a black robe sitting on a bench and, and he's not, Donald Trump's not in control anymore. Well, uh, knowing the way he's always behaved, uh, I just, I, I don't see he's controllable. And I, so I really, he, remember Jill, he's lost this lesson. I mean, he lost it on the merit. There's there summary judgment. I realize there are other causes of action still pending and there, the amount of money is at stake, you know, but I want to come back to, you know, Chris Christie has said, and I, I, I know that Christie is his opponent, 
But he has said that he knows Donald Trump very well, and Donald Trump's afraid of going to prison. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I, you know, I can't speak with that for any personal knowledge, but I can tell you that I represent and continue a lot of people who are either indicted or more likely just under investigation. I've never represented anybody in that position who is not afraid of going to prison. It's only human. So I think that he continues to be looking at the bigger audience and he's not worried about what this judge decides uh, his apartment that Trump power is worth. I think that is so small in the scope of what he's facing. On the one hand, he's facing being convicted and going to prison. On the other hand, he's facing being reelected and being president of the United States. I think it's this latter that's his objective. I I will say there is at least one thing that occurs to me, which is that to the extent that he was elected on the grounds that he was a successful businessman and this trial will show that he's not worth as much as he says and that he's gone through several bankruptcies, which I think they're opening up for cross-examination by saying he's great and everything's worth more, um, that he should be worried that it could influence the vote. And he's counting on winning so that he can make sure that he gets pardoned or dismisses any of the pending federal cases, um, which he can't do in Georgia, but he can do elsewhere. So, well, he, uh, you know, uh, Vic is too young to know who Roy Cohn was, but uh, there was a documentary. Victor. Victor knows a lot. He's Unless you, well, I've heard of Roy Cohn. Uh, so I had just happened since that I had a lot of interaction with Roy Cohn when I was very young. And uh, there was a documentary on HBO uh, about Trump and Cohn. It was called Where's My Roy Cohn? And it's been reported that whenever Trump would get very frustrated with his lawyers, he would say, where's my Roy Cohn? And Roy Cohn taught him the playbook and everything from not paying your bills to uh, take no take no prisoners and scorch earth policy, go after your opponents. When he was indicted by my boss, not by the grand jury, but my boss was Bob Morgenthau. He went after Morgan publicly, went after Morgenthau's father, who had died years before. Uh, but the one thing that I need to say, and I've talked about this before, Roy Cohn was indicted by the feds in three separate indictments. They were all unrelated. And the feds have always had a very high conviction rate, like 95% and upward. And Roy Cohn was found not guilty by three separate juries. And that was Donald Trump's mentor. So, I mean, I don't know anybody. You know, I think John Gotti was acquitted a couple of times. but He was finally convicted. But Roy Cohn, I don't know if you recall this, Jill, was found not guilty three different times, all by juries in the Southern District of New York. And Cohn and and Trump observed that. So, you know, I think that's in the back of his head. That is a possibility. Wow. Um, You know, you mentioned um, 
Chris Kais at the beginning of the episode and how he said, you know, in my 33 years as a lawyer, I've never heard a witness testify better. I mean, it seems like that entire sort of world is living in a different earth. And I'm wondering what you think they see that we don't. Do you think his lawyers are giving him sound counsel? What do you think is prompting them to say that? Well, I don't I, I don't know. And I don't want to be clear. And Chris Kais is a very good lawyer. But I think that if you represent him, and I don't think there's anything, frankly, unethical about that. I think that that's a strategy that if your client tells you and if you want to stay representing him and you can look yourself in the mirror doing it and you want to say to the press, my client was a great lawyer, uh, that kind of posturing, as long as you're not violating any gag order, is just part of advocacy. It's It's appealing to the American public rather than to the fact finder inside the building. But he's a good lawyer and he's the one who they hired when I respectfully declined. He's the Florida lawyer. Right. So, you know, I want to move to talking about cameras in the courtroom, something I'm very passionate about these days. But before we leave the trial subject, what do you think the outcome of the New York fraud case will be the Mar-a-Lago case, the election interference case, the Georgia case, uh, any or all of those feel free to talk about. Well, the New York case, are you talking about uh, the New York DA's case or the civil case? Well, both the, the fraud case that's currently pending, which as you've noted, he's already been found guilty, not on all counts, but on enough yes. counts, guilty of fraud. Uh, and they're looking at what are the damages for those, you know, wh- yeah. what what benefit did he illegally gain? Uh, and then there is the New York DA's case, in addition to the New York AG's case, one civil, the, the DA being criminal. But there's also the two federal cases in the Georgia case. And um, I guess, given the time limits we have, do you think that before the election, any or all of those will go to verdict? Uh, not finished with appeals. That's there's no possibility of that. But that there there will be verdicts in any or all of those. And how strong do you think the evidence is in each of these cases? In a normal, per, you know, you pointed out Roy Cohn was a unique thing where there were three uh, acquittals. And there's always the possibility that there's a mega juror who will say, "I don't care what I hear in this courtroom. I will never convict him," and they escape. Um, the jury polling to find out, you know, they get on the jury despite that attitude. Um, so barring that in a normal case where you would have a normal chance of of a jury listening to the evidence, what do you think in all of those cases, the civil, the criminal, all state and federal? Well, civil case where he's already been found liable. I mean, I think it's going to become a very technical uh, bottom line because uh, his analysis is that all the financial documents and to they have the judge has to determine uh, what kind of a preferential borrowing rate he got because of the misleading statements. So, I mean, that's going to get really above my pay grade and I'm not a civil lawyer, but uh, I think the easiest case, I shouldn't, easy is not the best word. The strongest case for the government is the Mar-a-Lago case, particularly the obstruction component. You know, there's been much to do about talking about classified documents and whether or not he had the power to classify them. It doesn't really matter because it's charged under the Espionage Act, which only required 
national defense documents, which he obviously had. But the strongest component is not that. It's the obstruction. And the obstruction, uh, as former Attorney General Barr said, Barr's words, not mine, were Trump is toast in that case. I mean, his yeah. the judge found crime fraud and his lawyer at the time was compelled to testify that rather than comply with the subpoena, basically his client, Donald Trump, told him to deep six the documents. If he had complied with that subpoena, like everyone else does, that case never would have been brought. I think the most important, so I'm not minimizing that at all, but I think the most serious, most important case to the rule of law is the case in the District of Columbia. And I also think that that case will go unless it's held up on appeal. And there are only two motions that there can be what we call interlocutory appeals. That means you don't have to wait till the end of the case. And one of them is on double jeopardy. And I think that that's not a strong argument at all. And the other one is on so-called presidential immunity. Uh, and if the Court of Appeals, those will be appealed, assuming they're denied, they'll be appealed. And then the question is whether or not, the, I don't want to get technical, whether or not the Supreme Court takes review of either or both of them. If the Supreme Court takes it, there's no telling how long it would be. I mean, right. and Jill, you remember in the yeah, case you tried, yeah. all that, it was record speed, but it was still months, wasn't it? It, well, it was April to July. I mean, okay. that's pretty darn fast for... Yeah, that's record speed. That was April from our subpoena to a judgment of the Supreme Court. And then you had compliance and a resignation by August. So it can be done quickly and should be done quickly, especially with an election pending. With Nixon, he had already been reelected, was in office, Um and so there was a reason for speed, because if you have a crook in the White House, you want to make sure that that gets taken care of right away. But yeah, I, I think the immunity claim is as weak uh, as any of them. Um, well, the, you know, that's, as you recall, Jill, uh, Nixon, when he was interviewed by David Frost, yes. he said something like, if the president does it by definition, it's legal. Uh, well, that's what this presidential immunity argument's all about. It's sort of parroting that. It's saying that under Article 2, and Trump has said this on television. He said under Article 2, as president, I could do whatever I want. And he's also said on television, he said, we have very little democracy left. Well, if, if uh, uh, Jonathan Carl's new book that's just coming out, he's talking about his plan to, if he's reelected, to sort of get rid of everyone who's not loyal to him. Uh, well, uh, then I don't think we'd have a democracy left. And if the president is free to do anything without any consequences, we also don't have a democracy left. And Jonathan Carroll is going to be a guest on our show coming up. So um, we'll we'll learn more about his book and his revelations. But um, let's move to cameras in the courtroom. Um, Victor, you want to ask the first question? Sure. Yeah. So um, I think as we all see in the New York case, the importance of cameras in the courtroom for people to see, you know, Trump's behavior and outlandishness. But talk about what the benefit would be in this specific case in general, but also in trials in general. Oh, yeah, about cameras? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, first of all, I've had experience. Uh, my wife, who's my law partner, uh, has tried two cases that were covered by court TV, gavel to gavel, the whole trial. 
and I'm not talking about my wife, but I'm talking about in general, there is a tendency for people to be aware. I know the cameras are very unobtrusive and there's only one camera, and but they're aware that thousands or in the case it would be Trump, millions of people are watching. Everyone's aware and it affects you. We're all human a little bit. So I'm generally opposed to it. I think in the Washington, D.C. case, I strongly feel it would be very important that that be televised. Uh, because rather than people like Jill or me come on television and say what happened, the American people could see it for themselves and nothing could, uh, could duplicate that. But I have to add that I think the chances of it happening are close to zero because it's specifically prohibited uh, by the rules. And in order, so I don't think Judge Shutkin would has the power to grant it. And for it to be for an exception to be made, it has to go to the judicial conference. And their procedures are they refer something like this to a committee. The committee then has to study it, and it then would have to be approved by the Supreme Court and the and or the Congress. And it's sort of a negative approval that if they don't take action, it becomes it goes into effect. And so what I'm saying is. It's not going to happen. There's not enough time under the procedures, and it's never happened. There has never been a federal criminal trial televised. Now, there have been some civil trials where there have been some pilot programs where they have been televised. But so, what I, so I don't mean to contradict myself. I think this is a case where I'm against cameras in the courtroom. I think in this case, it's very important that it, cameras be allowed in the courtroom because there's so much at stake. But I'm very I don't think it's going to happen for the reasons I said. Let me push back on one of the points you made. I agree that it's highly unlikely that it will happen, although the judicial conference could have done it. Instead, they have, as you said, referred it to a committee and suggested that it will take at least till 2026 to get an answer. Uh, despite the fact that there was a very successful pilot program and actually one of our Watergate colleagues, um, Judge Breyer, Chuck Breyer, uh, was one of the test judges um, who had cameras in his courtroom. But I want to push back on one point, which is if we look at the Minnesota trial of Derek Chauvin for murdering George Floyd, we can clearly see the benefit to justice and to public acceptance of verdicts of that trial having been televised. We saw that people saw the demeanor of the the um, witnesses and heard their testimony directly and accepted the verdict. I would also say that I'm going to push back on whether cameras affected anyone's behavior in the courtroom, in part because we are now all so used to being on camera. Everybody has a camera. And if cameras affected behavior, Derek Chauvin would not have murdered George Floyd. He knew he was recording the murder with his own body cam. He knew that there was a witness who was taping on her telephone the, the actions that he was engaged in, and it did not change his behavior at all. So I think there's some argument that can be made that we're used to cameras now. The cameras that were discussed, you know, like in the Shepard case, were these big, huge TV cameras that were intrusive, that were right in your face. Now they can be hidden behind a wall. They aren't visible. And I think, you know, as trials go on for weeks and months, that people just 
don't pay attention to them anymore. So I, I'm personally, I do agree with you that this case in particular, where we are all victims, victims get a right to see a trial. And here the accusation is that we, all American citizens, were deprived of the right to have the votes counted fairly and to have the Electoral College votes counted. And so we're victims and therefore we have a right to be there. And the only way we can be there is through cameras. Otherwise, aside from the fact that there isn't a courtroom anywhere in the world that could accommodate the population that would want to be there and the cost of travel to be there, I think cameras are the answer. And I'm, I'm, I agree with you, it's not likely, but I sort of am hopeful that maybe there could be some way to accommodate this, or at the very least, audio coverage. Um, and even the Supreme Court has allowed audio coverage now that during COVID, they had no way of having hearings without having um, it be by Zoom. And we had the benefit of being able to listen in and really understand how the arguments went. And so hopefully, hopefully, uh, although I agree it's unlikely to happen in time, but at some point, I think it would be good for all trials and for the system of justice to have things covered. Well, although, Jill, although we agree, we disagree just a little bit when it yeah. comes to this Trump trial, I think the case, it should be televised. And I would hope that uh, circumstances develop where things would be expedited. I'm just saying I'm very doubtful that it will happen, but I think it should be. Yeah, although I was doubtful the Supreme Court would have a code of ethics that they adopted, and we could debate whether that's a good or bad, how they did it, but at least they did take some action. Maybe, you know, they responded to public pressure. Maybe if there's enough public pressure, uh, you know, the Chief Justice will tell the Judicial Conference, yeah, take a look at this and put some rules in place that allow this trial or the Mar-a-Lago trial as well. I think because as you said, that one is is going to be a really interesting and certainly easier to prove case. Um, but anyway, you know, I, you I, mentioned I, Judge Judge Breyer's case. That was a civil case. Yes, so, it was. Uh, and so, but what I, my remarks are confined to criminal cases. Right. right. I, I, in terms of it affecting the jurors or the um, witnesses or the lawyers. To me, whether you're representing someone in a civil or a criminal case, your behavior is going to be the same. Um, and I, I didn't observe anything in the criminal trial in Minnesota that would suggest to me, and of course, the jury was not shown. We didn't see the jury ever. Uh, we saw the defense lawyers and the prosecutors and the witness. And so we could see the behavior of all. And I don't think there was anything remarkable about the behavior of any of the trial lawyers or the witnesses that they were more uncomfortable because they were on camera. Um, so I would need a lot more evidence to prove that there was some negative consequence. I just don't see the negative consequences. Um, but I, 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 I mean, since we both agree on the major thing, which is this particular trial um, is of national consequence and the only way to not have it filtered through reporters but to see it yourself and to make the same judgment that a jury will make um, is important. And so I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I, if, I, if the case comes to trial, if it does, it's not only Donald Trump, it's the rule of law that's on yes. trial. 
and the whole country, the whole world would be watching. So uh, we're in agreement, Jim. Thanks. So, well, I, then I have to ask you about two things that happened um, very recently, which is first, Jack Smith's brief arguing against cameras in the courtroom and his rebuttal Trump's motion. But also, what do you think of Trump changing his mind about um, initially taking no position on cameras to now asking for them in his DC trial? Well, he may be energized by thinking how well he did in uh, having a political rally, which is what Judge the Justice Engelhardt had to say to him, this is not a political rally. Uh, or he may just be undis- knowing that it's unlikely to be granted, so giving him an opportunity to say in his political rallies, hey, this is a, they're doing this in secret, I want everybody to see it, uh, knowing full well that the chances of it being televised are very, very slim. So let's um, turn to Florida, because we know you're right now in Miami. Um, you once served as Ron DeSantis's, um, or I guess a member of Ron DeSantis's transition team. So we wonder, if, just kind of speaking generally, about what you make of everything that's happening in Florida right now. Because to people who don't live in the state, it seems like there's so much just blatant anti-democracy actions that are going on right now. Um, things like books being banned, there's anti-LGBTQ plus laws being enacted, voter suppression laws. What does it feel like to be down there? And, and what do you make of everything going on there? Well, I would, I, let me defend Florida a little bit, even though, frankly, it's getting hotter and hotter. I, what I do defend is the weather we have here in the wintertime. <laughs> that that I'll defend uh, passionately. But, you know, a, a, we call it state attorney, but same thing, district attorney. So, where out in the state you live in, Vic, uh, a district attorney was removed by the voters uh, in San Francisco. But that's that recall provision that you all have. So, you know, I think that if a state attorney is elected in a free and fair election, as it were, they should be served filling, serving their full term unless they commit some real misconduct or unless they get indicted. Uh, and so I... I view it as being political. And I think that it's wrong. And I think that even these claims that some district attorneys are soft on crime, if that's the case, then run against them and beat them. Uh, so I'm, I am I think it's a dangerous trend that the governor removes district attorneys on the pretext that, well, there's some laws they're not enforcing. I mean, I grew up, I was a prosecutor for a long time, and I grew up with a concept of prosecutorial discretion that you had the discretion to choose to allocate your resources in a way that you thought was in the public interest. And you are answerable to the public at the polls. So I think it's a very dangerous thing. But uh, the governor here has been upheld in our Florida courts so far in the two dismissals. Well, yeah. And I should say, we, we had Andrew Warren, who was the first dismissal um, on this show. And um so hopefully our listeners will go back and listen to that episode and see what he was saying and the technicality on which the court said he was too late in doing what he did. Um, and I haven't followed what's happened. Monique Worrell was the second DA that was removed. Um, whether she has filed any, do you know if she's fighting it or has she just moved on? I, I don't know what more to say other than I think the voters should be the ones who choose who they're chief prosecutor is. And I don't think it's ever happened before, frankly, in Florida, to my knowledge, uh, you know, absent 
a prosecutor who was engaged in corruption. I mean, put, aside from something like that, I've never heard of it. I've lived in Florida 30 plus years. It's never happened uh, in the, since I've moved to Florida. So, you know, Ron DeSantis remains the number two candidate, although I would say quickly moving up is Nikki Haley. But for now, Ron DeSantis is way behind Donald Trump, uh, but is still number two. If he should prevail, if Donald Trump gets convicted and drops out or something, how would Ron DeSantis look as president? Would he be as authoritarian as he appears from the things he's doing? Um, As Victor said, banning books, voter suppression laws, uh, firing DAs that he doesn't like or think aren't doing what he wants them to do, even though they are independently elected. How How would he look as president? I think he would follow the usual accepted uh, ways the president of the United States should behave. Uh, you know, he's he's very smart. You know, he went to Yale and, and Harvard, Yale undergraduate Harvard Law School. You know, he's a veteran, uh, and I think he is appealing, trying to appeal. He's not succeeding in the MAGA base that that controls the party that nominates the candidate. And to be there, he's vying with Nikki Haley to be the one if Donald Trump should falter. But I think he would he would not be a loose cannon like like Donald Trump would be. Wow. I, know, I, I, we may not agree I with his policies, but I think he would respect the institutions. Yeah, but we thought that there would be guardrails for Donald Trump, too. And obviously they weren't. But I want to ask you, you just said, and he was a veteran. And during, I think it was the first debate, he claimed that he was a SEAL. And I went, I don't believe that. So I Googled it. And of course, he was a lawyer for a SEAL team. He was not a SEAL. And that bothers me every time he does this, I'm a veteran kind of thing. Um, do you think that matters that he's making it sound like he fought when he was a lawyer? He was a JAG officer. I I can't think of a public figure who you couldn't find something like that in the way they campaigned. I mean, uh, look at President uh, President Biden. Well, uh, when he ran for president on a prior occasion, uh, he was accused and he dropped out as a result of it of, of plagiarism. So, I mean, I think that's sort of a bipartisan thing that, uh, unfortunately, that the standard of all, and I, just, this, I don't care which party they're in, that this happens all too often. Well, I think there's a difference between claiming you're a vet and dropping out because you were accused of plagiarism. Um, well, he was a veteran. I, you know, the, I mean, the issue is what he did. But while he wasn't he was a seal. He wasn't a seal. I mean, yeah. that's that's the point. I think no, seals no, I get, get a. Yeah. I'm not. But uh, the last thing I want to be doing is defending Ron DeSantis. But I'm just saying he did serve in Afghanistan, and so yes, what we're talking about is what what he really did. But he did serve. He volunteered, you know, to his credit. There was no draft. Uh, but I, no, I have. Well, I don't disagree with you. I'm, uh, I, well, as I said, the la- I was on his transition team in a very minor role. Uh, I, I, at the time, I never even know how I got on it. I'm not apologizing. I mean, you know, we did some some good work, but uh, uh, you know, I. But I think this is an academic discussion because you know, I think Donald Trump is so far ahead. 
and seems to be gaining every day. And be, you know, coming whether or not he or DeSantis or Nikki Haley come in second doesn't matter. You know, there's no prize for coming in second. There's only one nominee. You know, there was an interesting um, a bunch of Turning Point USA students were, were polled the other day, and Nikki Haley actually won uh, and beat Trump in that straw poll. So, I don't know. There might be some more support for Nikki Haley, which to me is a little bit more frightening, actually, than Donald Trump winning. But that's for another discussion. Um, but to close out this episode, I do want to ask you about um, advice for young people, which is how we usually end this podcast. Um, before we started recording, we were talking about um, young people entering the workforce and how it's not in person. But I- I'm wondering what you would say to anyone who's interested in pursuing the law, any young people who are thinking of becoming a lawyer, what would you say to them? That's pretty easy because there's something that disturbs me a lot about why, you know, we always think, oh, the good old days were better. And I'm not one like that. I'm an optimist about the future. I mean, I have a son who's about your age, Vic, and I talk to him about these things all the time. What's the most troublesome to me about our whole culture now is people, and I'm generalizing, but I really believe this, people are incapable of having a respectful, collegial discussion and walking away and uh, being respectful and agreeing to disagree. It becomes personal. Uh, Nobody's willing to compromise. Uh, It becomes combative. And uh, nothing gets done that way. I mean, we see that in the Congress. And I see it amongst lawyers who I think are smart, who are well-educated. People simply have to start respecting each other. And, uh, And I think young people today need to really be involved. My generation was very much involved in the uh, anti-Vietnam War movement. Your generation, climate change, I see some involvement, but I really haven't seen any real deep commitment to become involved in just making a contribution to make the world better. But however you all do it, you need to be respectful of each other. And, uh, and you know, you don't have all, you or I or Jill, we don't have all the answers. So we need to listen and we need to say, you know, on this point, a matter of principle, I'm not going to change. But on other things, you know, we're going to come together and make the world a better place, which is an uphill battle the way things are going right now. Well, that was a great way to end the episode. John, thank you so much for coming on today and talking with me and Jill about all these issues. It was great to have you. Thank you for having me. I I enjoyed it. Thank you, John. It was great to be with you. Thanks, Jill. Uh, Stay in touch. Thank you, everyone, for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics. We hope you enjoyed it as much as Joel and I did. We will be back next week for another episode of iGen Politics. So be sure to subscribe right here on youtube.com slash Politicon if you watch this episode. Or if you're listening to this episode, be sure to subscribe uh, wherever you follow your podcast and rate it so you don't miss a single one of our episodes. We'll be back next week. Thank you, everyone, for watching and have a safe week and uh, a great, hopefully, pre Thanksgiving uh, uh, preparation week. And I want to just say I will put a photograph of my pin so you can see it clearly in our show notes with a link to the company that made the pin. Um, they have some other wonderful uh, political pins, and uh, it's called Woken Bespoke. So look for them. Let's bring brooches back.